What a beautiful, beautiful time of remembering what Jesus has done and what he wants to do in our lives. To be able to say, it is well with my soul. Well, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We are now going to participate in the only perfect part of the worship service. The reading of God's infallible, inerrant, inspired Word. Uh, This is the very Word of God that we are reading. We're going to read Matthew 5. 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is your holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired word. That it comes straight from you. And we thank you, Lord, that you want to teach us once again from your word, that you want to change us as we contemplate its truths. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, God is changing us as his word does its work in those who believe. As we've been looking at the Beatitudes that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount, It's exciting to see and hear what God is doing in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, and in this church for His glory. God is changing us as we dwell upon His Word and as we listen and as we desire to do what pleases Him. What God's Word does is it corrects faulty worldviews. It it instructs us. it, It corrects our sinful habits. And it encourages us to see ourselves as God sees us, to see ourselves as we are in Christ. Now, it had a similar effect on his first disciples, too. See, according to Jesus Christ, his followers 
were blessed in ways that from their earliest childhood they had been told was a curse. Blessed in ways that they had been taught to think of as a curse. You see, Jesus was speaking to Jews who believed that material prosperity of every shape and size were the sign of God's blessing in their life. They believed that material prosperity showed that God was blessing you and that you were now pleasing to Him. But Jesus says, you are blessed because of who you are, not because of what you do or what you have. See, the Beatitudes don't prescribe a course of action for all people. The Beatitudes describe Christians. The humble, poor in spirit. The, the, those who mourn over their sinfulness. The, the gentle, powerful who refuse to domineer. And have this unquenchable thirst and appetite for God's righteousness. Who show mercy in practical and in spiritual ways in their deeds who are pure to the very core of their being because of their faith in Christ, not because of what they have done to earn anything or to merit anything before God, but because of who they are at the very core of their being because of their faith in Christ. This is who Jesus is describing. And it's all for the sake of Jesus. It is all because of him that that they are saved, And it is all because of him that they can now enjoy this identity that they have in Christ. And now, to his description, Jesus adds peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who pursue the things that make for peace. It's not optional. This is the identity of every Christian. In fact, if you claim to be a Christian and are content to live not in peace, even with hostility towards other people or even hostility towards God, then you are either not a Christian or you are a a disobedient and hard-hearted one. See, the need for peace suggests that you are in a situation that has conflict, that involves conflict of some sort, that there is a difference of opinion. There is, it assumes controversy. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars. Since time began, there have been literally thousands upon thousands of wars. Many of us have lived through uh, several U.S. wars in our lifetimes, World War II, and Korea, and Vietnam, and the Gulf War, and Iraq, and others. Allies don't attack one another, most of the time. See, it's, it's who you're at odds with, with which you fight. It is ingrained in human nature to retaliate, to fight back, to to pay someone back for what they did, to make someone pay, to even the score. It's ingrained in our human nature to do that. 
We often remain enemies long after the actual battle has subsided. Cold War. The actual physical fight is over, and we're still enemies. But whether, but whether the war is hot or cold, peace is a commodity in scarce supply amongst humans. A commodity in short supply. And so in our text for today, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers. Jesus was hitting it at the heart, the very core of the value systems of his day. Among the groups vying for supremacy were zealots who believed that Rome was the evil empire and that anyone who worked for Rome deserved to die, that they should be killed. The zealots engaged in guerrilla warfare against Roman soldiers, thinking that they were honoring God when they killed them. So hearing Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, he must have burned them up. I mean, Jesus was sending a heat-seeking missile right at the core, at the very heart of the zealot's worldview. And to get to the heart of this verse, you've got to ask a question. You've got to ask, what is peace? What is real peace? We want it. We need it. What is it? What is peace? God's peace is, we know, first of all, God's peace is different than man's peace. Far different than man's peace. It is more than the absence, the sheer absence of the external conflict, of the outward conflict. And peacemakers, peacemakers are those who have peace with God and share it with others. Peacemakers have peace with God in their own in their own hearts and souls, and they're able to share that with other people. They, they help other people be at peace with God. They help other people be at peace with other people. Peacemakers. It's the one who, who first of all, has peace in their own heart with God, helps others have peace with God, and makes peace with others, but first in their own heart. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen says that we are called to peace. That is our, that's our calling. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see this idea of, of peace and, and reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians 5, in the context of being a new creation in Christ, that all who have faith in Christ are new creatures in Christ, then the Holy Spirit says through Paul that the love of Christ controls us. Verse 14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, One died for all, therefore all died. He died for all that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then he says this, all these things are from God. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself, peace. He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, helping others have peace with God, primarily and secondarily, having peace with one another. But first and foremost, namely, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, peace. Therefore, it says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are peace ambassadors. 
We are messengers of peace, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The peacemakers are messengers of peace. And the biblical concept of peace is, is both a simple and complex one. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, comp, the idea of a, of a peaceful kingdom is, is really wrapped up in that, in that term shalom, peace. Uh, shalom means not only the absence of sin and conflict and war and strife, but also the presence of, of love and peace and harmony and health. It's not just taking away what is bad, but it is in its place, bringing what is good. Man can only call a truce. and can raise the white flag and say, uh, cease fire. Man can call a truce. Only God can give true peace. Only God can bring peace. His peace stops the conflict, but doesn't just stop the conflict. He also replaces it with his truth and his righteousness. As Psalm 85 verse 10 says, loving kindness and truth have met. They have met. And, and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They have kissed. Loving kindness and truth have met. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Very close. And the New Testament word for peace is reine. It means the absence or the end of conflict or strife. And it describes harmonious relationships, first and foremost between people and God, but also between people and nations. It, it describes order. It, it describes friendliness. See, the opposite of peace is war. War, unrest, strife. But the primary conflict resides in the human heart. It resides in our heart. Yes, war is the opposite of peace, but the primary uh, place of conflict is in the human heart. You see, there's this undeniable uh, gospel thirst that exists in every person. An undeniable gospel thirst that, that exists in every person because they're made in the image of God. They don't know what to call that thirst. They wouldn't call it a gospel thirst. They just know that something is missing in their life. They are longing for a Savior that will atone for their sins. They want peace. But instead of believing in Jesus... They try to find that Savior here on earth through some sort of functional Savior, a relationship or a job or, or even a politician, and, and, and something they think will fill the God-shaped void that they, that, they, that they don't even know how to describe or even name that's in their life. But it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't fill the void. The people are, are longing for a Savior that will atone for their sins, and they are longing for a kingdom, a king, who will bring them into his kingdom and keep them in, at peace and in safety. 
That's what people are longing for. But people are so parched with thirst for this, for this Savior and this King who can give them what they want. What, what happens is that almost every day, almost every day, they can't help but naively think that this functional Savior that they have chosen might somehow be able to bring them that peace even in spite of sin, even in spite of the curse, that they think that this functional Savior will bring them the peace that they long for so much. It's like Solomon said, striving after wind. It's like chasing wind. It eludes them because God is the maker of peace and God is the giver of peace. They got to go to the right well. The Father is the source of peace. The Son is the manifestation of peace. The Holy Spirit is the agent of peace. In those He indwells, He he produces fruit. The, The outcome of His work in their life, and one of them is peace. There is the tie in between the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit. And the Spirit produces peace in and through the lives of those He indwells. Believers in Jesus, who by faith in Christ are what Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. God the Father sent the Prince of Peace, who in turn sends the Spirit of Peace. God is called in the Old Testament Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. In the New Testament, He is. He is called the God of peace. Our very peace. Once you have the peace question settled about where it comes from and what it is, you've got to ask, peace with whom? And peace at what cost? Peace with whom? There are two kinds. First and and primarily, peace between God and people. Peace between sinful humanity and God. Matthew 5, 9 is the only place the noun peacemakers is used in the New Testament, but the verbal form is found in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, where it says that Jesus, Jesus Christ, has reconciled all things to himself, having made peace, through the blood of his cross. He has reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. See, the hostility, the enmity was all ours. We were at war with God. We were at war with God. But when we receive Christ by faith, well, the war ends and peace begins. It's described in in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 and verse 10 says that for if 
while we were enemies, while we were at war with God, while we were hostile to God, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We shall be saved by Christ's life through his death on the cross. See, it takes faith in the finished work of Christ to have peace with God. Faith in the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, his death on the cross. The heart of the gospel message is all about God. It is all about God who is holy, making a way for us who were dead in sin and objects of God's wrath with no ability to save ourselves to be rescued and restored in relationship to God. It's all about what God has done. God who loves us and is full of mercy sent Jesus to die on the cross for sin. And all who trust in Christ alone are saved from the wrath of God, are freed from the power and penalty of sin. I can never tire of hearing that, that gospel truth, that all who by faith in Christ alone come to God, they are, they are freed from the power and the penalty of sin. They are saved from the wrath of God. You see, in the gospel, God restores man to his original purpose of reflecting his glory, of reflecting God's glory. And Jesus gives true, lasting, personal peace. He is the only one who gives it. In fact, he doesn't just give us peace, He himself is our peace. Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Ephesians 2 and verse 14 says, He himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. Who has torn down the dividing wall. You see, in those days, if you weren't a part of God's covenant people, you couldn't come into the assembly. You had to stay outside behind a literal uh, partition. You couldn't be in the congregation of the holy. You were separated from the rest. And God tore down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile. Bringing all who by faith would come into relationship with him. Into his peace. Into that relationship characterized by peace. That is what God has done. But because we still sin, we mess up that daily peace that God wants us to enjoy with Him. Because we still sin, we need to be continually cleansed by the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 1 explains this really well for us. In 1 John chapter 1, In verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. 
And if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We're liars. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Brings us back into the experience of the peace that God has given us in Christ. It says that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We call God a liar. And his word is not in us. See, when we live with unconfessed sin in our lives, it it breaks the peace that God wants us to have with him. Our fellowship with him is broken and the peace becomes absent. And we're at unrest in 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 our hearts, in our souls. And we know something's not right. And that's why confession and repentance is so necessary in the life of a believer in Jesus. And there's something else about this as well. This is not just for us. This is not just for me or for you. This is for us to share with other people that we are to be messengers of God's peace. We are to carry the gospel message of peace to other people. Romans chapter 10 speaks of the beautiful, beautiful feet of those who carry good news. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14 says, How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How can they do that? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? How can they do that? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Good news of good things. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. We bring the word of Christ. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ. The gospel of peace. To other people. To all people. We have no idea who God has chosen. So we share the gospel with everyone. I think it was Spurgeon who someone asked one time. Why don't you preach just to the elect? And he said, you put a chalk mark on all the elect, and I will. Only God knows those who are his. We share the gospel message of peace with everyone. That's what we're to do. So first, there's peace with God. Without peace with God, you can't have peace with people. You can't. You might call it peace, but it's not true peace. Without first having experienced it with God, you cannot initiate it with others. It's a prerequisite. So first there's peace with God. Before we can initiate peace with others, we must have peace with God and experience it in our own, our own hearts, in our own lives. But second, there's peace between people. Peace between people. Human relationships. Peace 
is something everybody wants, but few are willing to do the work that it requires. Peace is hard work. From Rodney King, asking the people of Los Angeles, can't we all just get along? To peace treaties that are broken the very same day. We can't keep the peace. Now, there are exceptions. From Mother Teresa in India, who for so many years was a beacon of peace, was even given the Nobel Peace Prize. To, to peace officers that, that keep the peace. They, they hit the streets on a daily basis to keep the peace. We have peace officers in, in this congregation. You know how hard it is to keep the peace. My father was a policeman in Los Angeles for 30 years. He told me, he says, that the hardest thing about keeping the peace is the people. <laughs> the hardest thing about keeping the peace was dealing with the variable, the unknown with people. It's not the concept of peace that's so difficult. It's the fact that people have to apply it. That's what causes the issues. What causes the issue in your household? What causes the issues in your relationships? What causes the issues all over the world with people not being able to keep the peace? How come it's so elusive? It's, not, it's an easy answer. It's because of sin. Our fallen nature makes it inevitable that conflict will arise. So for Christians, this whole idea of seeking reconciliation with those with whom we are at odds... And, and helping other people who are at odds with others have reconciliation as well, that is crucial. We're called to be bridge builders. Peacemakers are bridge builders. And bridge building is hard work. See, most human attempts at peace are pale substitutes for the peace, the true peace that God gives we're to seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 34, 14, as well as 1 Peter 3. Christians have peace through, with God through Jesus Christ. But we have this battle going on on the inside and the outside. We've got internal unrest. We've got outward conflict, external strife with others. We've got fear within. We've got arguments without. See, before sin came into the world, there was only Harmony. If there were no strife and conflict, there would no, be no peace. Everything would be peace. There'd be no contrast. Well, how do you know when you have peace with others? How do you know if you're living at peace with other people? You know. You know because you can put your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep. You know because you can look them in the eye and the Holy Spirit is not saying to you, something's not right. Right? There's no shame, there's no conviction, because things are right. Romans 14, verse 19 says, So then, let us pursue, let us, let us chase after the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Let us pursue the things that make for peace. What are those things? There are several things. There, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness versus uh, retaliation. 
forgiveness versus choking someone relationally for years because you won't let it go. There is patience versus lashing out. There is bearing with the person versus, versus uh, spilling out all over them with anger. There is love and kindness versus uh, hatred and unkindness. There's truth and sincerity versus falsehood and duplicity. There's humility versus pride. What are we to do? What are we to do? Well, Matthew 5 and 23 tells us what we are to do. If you are presenting your offering at the altar, if you're trying to worship God, at church, at home, wherever you are throughout the week, throughout your day, if you are presenting your offering to God, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and prepare, present your offering. God's saying, don't even, don't even try to worship me if you're not at peace with other people. Get that right first. Do the hard work. Let me bring peace where there was strife. Let me bring peace where there was hatred. Let me bring peace in your home, in your relationships, in your workplace, in your classroom, wherever you hang out. Romans 12, verse 18 says, as far as possible. So as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. As far as it is possible, be at peace with all men. Men, women, boys, girls, everyone, humankind. Be at peace with people as far as it is possible with you. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There is a tie-in between peace and sanctification. If you're not living in peace with people, you are not growing in Christ. You're not. You can't. You've, you've clogged up the arteries. You've, 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 you need to open the passageway by making peace. Then you can grow. Otherwise, forget about it. Stay stagnant. That's what, you'll, that's what you'll do. Now, is it ever okay to not be at peace with someone? That's a valid question, right? Is it ever okay not to be at peace with someone? Well, when you have tried to reconcile, and they won't. When you've tried to reconcile, and they won't do it. You can't make them. You can't force someone to be at peace with you. See, building a bridge is not a one-sided proposition. There's got to be someone on both sides of the banks. <laughs> a one-sided bridge will fall, right? We are to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3 is alluding to. When Paul says, I, I, I'm a prisoner of, of, of Christ. I'm a prisoner of God. And I, I'm, I'm calling you to, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. 
with peace and patience and, and love and other things. And that says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in this congregation must be preserved through the bond of peace. True peace, the kind that God gives, not the false kind where we say, oh yeah, we're at peace, I just don't want to look at you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But maybe you've had, maybe you've had the privilege of bringing two warring parties together who were enemies and now are in a growing friendship, a growing relationship. Maybe it's a husband and wife Maybe it's two friends. Maybe it's you and someone else. See, once we have peace with God, we can desire it with other people. When I became a Christian, I was able to forgive those who had hurt me in the past that I was holding on to. I didn't want to. But God enabled me to do that. And when I became a Christian, I was enabled to go to those that I had hurt and seek their forgiveness and want to be at peace with them. Once you've answered the peace with whom question, then you can get on to the stickiest question as it regards to peace, in regards to peace. Peace at what cost? Is it peace at any cost? Now it comes at great cost. Peace is costly. Peace is painful. Peace comes at great cost, but it is not peace at any cost. Not at the cost of convictions, and not at the cost of truth. Truth is objective, opinions are subjective. And the highest good is not peace, but peacemaking within the bounds of God's truth. Peacemaking within the bounds of God's truth. To go along with heresy, to go along with blasphemy, to go along with immorality or other things that are contrary to God in the name of peace is to totally ignore this teaching in its context. What will it cost you to pursue peace? Let me give you five things. Five things it will cost you if you want to pursue peace. First of all, it may cost you personal comfort. Peace is painful. Peace is tough. It is not comfortable to confront wrong. But that is what peacemakers do. Now, we put pacifiers in babies' mouths. We put them there so that they will quiet down. We put them there to appease them. Appeasement is not peace. That's a temporary fix. It's artificial. Appeasement is not real peace. To live the reality of being a peacemaker, you got to throw away the pacifier. And we love the pacifier, don't we? Be comfortable. Got all these nicknames in my house. Nobody uses one now at my house anymore, but we got a whole bunch of names for pacifiers. You know, you got the little nicknames because you like them so much. It feels so good but it only appeases, it doesn't give you truly what you need and what you want. To live the reality of being a peacemaker, you've got to throw away the pacifier. And it's like a referee at a boxing match. They have scars to prove that that's what they are. They get in the middle of a punch sometimes. Number two, it may cost you your reputation. 
You want to be a peacemaker? It may cost you your reputation for being a really good guy or a really good gal. You think that everyone would like a peacemaker, right? It's not, rabble-rousers don't. To his opponents, Jesus wasn't a peacemaker. He was a troublemaker. He was a rebel. He was a threat to those whose selfish motives were easily uncovered by Jesus' words and deeds. It may cost you your reputation. Thirdly, it may cost you your life. I don't want to scare you, but literally and figuratively, it may cost you your life. Many have died bringing the gospel of peace into hostile places. More on that next week. But don't be surprised when being a peacemaker brings opposition. Jesus said we must die daily to self. Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it, will gain it. Now it'll also cost you a couple things you don't want anyway. The two things, the fourth and fifth things I'll put together. Anger and resentment. If you want to be a peacemaker, it'll cost you anger and resentment. You've got to give those up. They are forbidden shortcuts that peacemakers put aside in favor of dealing with issues rather than creating new ones or worse ones. They turn the other cheek. We're going to be looking at that some months down the road in in great detail. But they turn the other cheek not because it feels good, but because God tells them to. (laughs) And, And he is pleased when they do. See, making peace is hard work. Keeping it even harder. The alternative is cheap peace. Proclaiming false peace without working through the issues. Saying peace, peace where there is no peace, as Jeremiah 6.14 says. See, God's peace does not evade or ignore issues. True peace will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you uh, resources. It will cost you energy to reconcile with someone that you are at odds with, to help someone else. You may know a married couple whose marriage is on the rocks, headed for divorce. You may have friends. You, you most likely have friends in that category or people that are just at war with each other. So what do you do? Do you just simply pray for them and then walk down the other side of the street and watch a train wreck happen? Or do you pray and then go to them and help them in some way? That's the most loving thing we can do. See, with all the issues that we face with peace and the temptations to not live in peace, it comes down to to one thing. It comes down to trusting God's sovereignty, that he is in control, that he is the giver of peace. You see, a peacemaker is not a warmonger and not a total pacifist either. Not a bully, not a doormat. They trust God's sovereignty and they act upon it. Nehemiah was a true peacemaker. God used him to bring back the Jews to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls in 445 BC. And there were opponents to the work, opponents that hated them, that were threatened by the Jews gaining strength again. 
And they tried everything in their power to get them to stop building. Everything. Maligning their reputations. Writing letters all over the place to anyone they could who could do anything to stop them. Including telling lies about them. All they wanted to do was stop them from working. But Nehemiah wouldn't give in. He trusted God and he acted. He prayed. He knew that God would fight for them. But he also got the people ready to fight. They, they worked with one hand with a trowel and the other with a weapon. From morning till the stars appeared. He knew God would fight for them, but he got the people ready to fight. They had confident peace in the midst of adversity. Confident peace in the midst of a conflict. And the result was joy. Pure joy. Read it. It's in Nehemiah. As we wrap this up, the last part of of verse 9 says this. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now there are two Greek words, huios and technon, that that are used in, in the New Testament of a believer's relationship to God. Technon means child. It's, it's the idea of, of tender affection as well as the relationship between parent and child. You see it in John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them he became, gave them the right to become children of God. But son, on the other hand, expresses the dignity and the honor of the relationship. God's peacemakers have the gift from God, the blessing of eternal sonship, both now and in heaven forever. They will be called sons of God. See, Christians, when they live up to their calling as peacemakers, are recognized as Christians, recognized as God's children. Christians are like God when they make peace. Like when we recognize someone and we call them by name. People will recognize you and call you God's child. God's son. God's daughter. When we bring warring parties together. When we pay the price for peace. Because peace requires an honest assessment of the situation. And then a willingness to act. To make things right. And that is what Jesus did. He knew our desperate sin condition and he came and dealt with our problem. And that's what we celebrate here at this table today.